Amen. Well, what a crazy week. Spent the beginning of the week in Chicago. Came back to Haverhill being in the national news and uh, with the teacher's strike and all that, but nothing like being gathered together again with my church family. And today we are going to be finishing the book of Romans, finishing Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Romans 16, 17 to 27. We've been in this letter for over a year, off and on. Took breaks, you know, during uh, Advent and Lent and things like that. But we've been in Romans for quite a long time, and now we're coming to the very end of his letter. Now you think about it, how would you want to end? This is sort of Paul's magnum opus, right? This is his longest and most substantial letter in the New Testament. In fact, it's the longest letter in the New Testament, not the longest book, but the longest letter in the New Testament overall. And many would say the clearest picture or explanation of the gospel that we find in perhaps the entire Bible. How would you want to end a letter like that? And I think what ties everything in this last section together is a calling to persevere. A calling to endure. To press on faithfully to the end. He gives a, a final warning, then a final greeting from the folks that he is uh, sending greetings from. Last week we looked at who he's sending greetings to. This is whom he's sending greetings from. And then a final benediction to that the Lord would strengthen them faithfully to the end. Um, perseverance or endurance in the Christian faith may be the most underrated and um, uh, not least talked about but not talked about enough aspects of the Christian faith within the evangelical Christian world. Uh, Because we put such an emphasis on conversion. We put such an emphasis on responding to an altar call or saying the sinner's prayer or having a big conversion experience, all of which are great and amazing and essential, right? We want to have a time in which we come to know Christ, even if we don't remember the exact moment. and That we sometimes neglect the idea that the calling in the Bible is to persevere faithfully to the end. Um, where did Paul, the apostle, get this crazy idea? From Jesus, all right? Matthew 10, 22. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 24, 13, he says it again. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Repeated in Mark 13, 13. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. In the book of Revelation, he addresses the seven churches. And to each of the seven churches, he gives this same reminder. Revelation 2, 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Clear salvation language. Revelation 2.11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death, a reference to hell. Revelation 2.17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give of the hidden manna and give him the white stone with a new name written on the stone. The stone is likely used like a ticket of entrance to a feast. Or wedding. Revelation 2.26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Revelation 3.5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, a picture again of the gospel, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. 
Revelation 3.12, the one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God. And then Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Again and again, we're called to make sure to persevere faithfully to the end. How do we do that? Look with me at Romans 16, 17 to 27, as we finish off Paul's letter to the Romans. He writes this. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God. Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the preaching and the receiving of his word this morning. Here we are at the end of this letter, the calling to persevere in the Christian life. Here's where we're going. Uh, 17 to 20, persevere by guarding against the evil one. He connects false teaching and Satan himself. Protect against the evil one. 21 to 23, persevere by utilizing good shepherds. He sort of commends to them certain good shepherds, good pastors, good Christian leaders. And then, of course, that final benediction, 24 to 27, we persevere by strengthening in the gospel. God strengthens us in the gospel. So look with me. At 17 to 20, we persevere by guarding against the evil one. 17, he appeals to them to watch out. Interesting that he saves this warning to almost the very end of the letter. Watch out, beware of those who do two things. One, cause divisions. So they seek to divide the church of God. They seek to create dissension through lies and deception. Uh, They want to create factions in the church and divide it up and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. They teach false doctrine. They teach about God wrongly and say things about Christ that are incorrect. And his advice about these people is very simple avoid them. (laughs) Stay away from them entirely. We'll get back to how to do that in just a bit. But verse 18, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Very insightful. Uh, False teachers, if you're not doing it to serve the Lord, so you're a pastor or Christian leader or author, whatever it may be, and you're not doing it because you genuinely want to serve God, why are you doing it? Usually it's just some 
appetite. There's some fleshly desire that you're seeking to fulfill. And usually that is one of three things. Um, one, it's money, greed, right? You want more money and you're using naive Christians to get money. Um, or it's power. You want fame and attention and you're using Christianity as a sort of celebrity and an opportunity to reach a celebrity status. Or it's lust. You're using it to take advantage to uh, uh, sexually of people. We see that in not only Roman Catholicism, but basically all denominations. There are, even in the Southern Baptist Convention, we've seen as of recently, there are some who are in Christian leadership for those purposes. They're feeding their own appetites, their own fleshly desires. He continues, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Not speak, they don't speak plainly. They don't teach the word clearly, right? They always want to say it and, and sort of compromise it, make it sound more palatable than it maybe is, and they're constantly twisting it, really ultimately to make it more about us rather than God, more about what is self-satisfying or self-realization. Who does that sound like? It sounds like Satan himself, which we'll get to in just a bit. Verse 19, he does encourage the Romans that your obedience is known to all. In fact, most commentators believe that Paul doesn't have a specific false teacher or a specific false teaching in mind in this letter uh, because he has never been to Rome, for one. In many of his letters, he's dealing with a very specific type of false teaching, the Judaizers in Galatians and so forth. Here, it seems like he's just trying to give them a general warning and sort of commends them at the same time and says, but I know this, your obedience is known to all. I know that you guys are being faithful. I know that you haven't allowed false teaching to really invade and corrupt the church so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Seems like almost a reference here to the opposite of Adam and Eve who sought wisdom in what is evil, and in doing so, were not innocent when it comes to evil. He's calling them to the exact opposite. I want you to be wise to what is good, <laughs> not to what is evil. You don't gain by wisdom by disobeying God. You gain wisdom by pursuing God and what is right and remain innocent of what is evil. And so he turns in verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet is a clear reference back to the garden in Genesis 3. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And here, it's not just Jesus, the offspring of the woman, but us united to Jesus that crush the head of the serpent under your feet. The final victory is coming over Satan and all of his deception and smooth talk and flattery for all those who are faithful, persevering in the truth grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. A definite warning here to those um, who are influenced by false teaching. Uh, his command here is pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Avoid them. <laughs> How do you deal with, by the way, false teaching is very much alive and active today. This isn't something that was only true 2,000 years ago and they dealt with all the heresies and they came to the right conclusion and we haven't had to deal with it anymore. Uh, it's very true here in the United States. Uh, it's very much an issue here in the United States. It's very much an issue around the world uh, in the Christian church. Um, I, I would say that uh, the most dangerous, and this is sort of you know, me giving you what I think is the most dangerous types of false teaching today, 
Um, number one is prosperity teaching, so which basically takes the Christian faith and turns it into something all about you. It's all about me prospering. It's all about money and wealth and me being successful in my life, and I get to just use God as a tool to help me get what I want. Uh, you see that on a lot of the preachers on uh, TBN. Not all of them. Some good, faithful preachers on there as well. But a lot of prosperity teachers who are not talking about sin, they're not talking about a savior in Jesus, not talking about repentance and faith, not talking about eternal life. Um, so I think that is still a danger. And by the way, we are absolutely sending that around the world. That is a huge issue in Asia and in Africa, uh, the prosperity gospel. The other one is what used to be called liberal theology. By that, I'm not talking about politics. You could be more liberal in your politics and conservative in your theology. I'm talking about theology here. Liberal theology means usually you deny the authority of the Bible. And liberal theology doesn't come in the same package. It's been repackaged into something a little different today. Um, it's usually called something like woke theology. All right. Again, I'm not talking politics. I'm just talking theology here. Um, in which we say, well, the Christian faith is really not about the atonement. It's not about Jesus' death for our sins. It really is just about a social gospel. It really is just all about learning to be kind and loving and caring to other people. In fact, you have a lot of people who now say, I'm deconstructing my faith. I no longer believe all the things that I was taught growing up. I believe that Jesus really just accepted everybody, and his whole purpose in coming was to give us a big pat on the back and tell us what a great job we're doing right that's what i think we see a repackaging of what was very big in mainline denominations which is rejecting of the scriptures in what was called liberal theology still very much alive today one more and that is traditionalism this has always been an issue but it is still an issue and that is to reduce the christian faith into merely a religion go through these motions go through these sacraments make sure you go to church and you go through and get all the specific rituals done and you'll be saved. That's all you have to do. Same thing we find basically in every world religion, by the way. False teaching and false teachers are still very much an issue today. His advice is simple. Avoid them. Avoid them. Don't watch them on TV, right? Don't go to their conferences. Don't read their books. <laughs> uh, don't associate with them. It's pretty simple, actually. Just stay away from them. There is, there is so much out there that is good I don't know why you would want to spend a lot of time reading anything by Benny Hinn or anything by, I didn't want to mention too many names here, but anything from, by false teachers. I, I would just say, why, why would you waste your time? I mean, I, I, there's so much out there. I say, I, just give me the truth. I want the pure, unfiltered, unadulterated biblical truth. Don't give me this watered-down version to make me feel better about myself. I can decide for myself. Just give me the word. Give me the whole counsel of God, and I can discern uh, what you're saying through it, and I'll either repent and, and receive it or not. But I don't want you to sort of just pat me on the back and make my ego feel better about myself. I don't find that to be helpful at all. Avoid them. Now, when they're in the church, it's a little different. Uh, I do think that uh, the church, you do have to sort of deal with it in a different way. That's why God gives you pastors and elders. Uh, if there is false teaching in the church, either someone who is seeking to divide the church or someone teaching what is contrary to sound doctrine, that is literally what you have pastors and elders for to deal with that, to make sure that the teaching in our church is good. 
um, and I hope it is. Uh, we are offering, uh, you know, devotionals throughout the week, and I'm glad to uh, let you guys know that Ambrose has joined us. He does Friday, uh, the Friday noon prayer now, and is doing a fantastic job. Pastor Mike does Monday. Joe Harrington does Wednesday. I'm still doing Tuesday and Thursday. Uh, if we can get Dennis back into maybe doing one, one day a week, but teaching the word faithfully and then leading the congregation in prayer, protecting the congregation. Avoid them. Stay away from them. Look what he says next. He recommends to them some good shepherds. <laughs> uh, he doesn't just leave it there. He says, well, let me commend to you. Well, first of all, there's Paul himself. Paul is a faithful apostle. He's a missionary. He's the one writing this letter. He's committed to the truth of the gospel, and he wants to see the church doing well and flourishing. But then he writes to them about Timothy. Uh, Timothy is Paul's protege, right? He calls him his true son in the faith. Paul mentions Timothy in almost all of his letters. He trusted Timothy, who's a lot younger than Paul. He trusted him so much that he put him in charge of the church in Ephesus which was an extremely important church, one that Paul was particularly close to. We can read about it in book, the book of Acts, praise with the Ephesian elders. Well, he puts Timothy in charge of the church in Ephesus and trusts him, writes two letters to him, first and second Timothy, and he commends him as a fellow worker. He also mentions Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, uh, whom he calls his kinsmen. We're not exactly sure who these men are. Um, Lucius, may, some believe, is a reference to Luke, um, but however, he calls him his kinsman, and Luke we usually recognize to be a Gentile, so it may not be him. There is a Lucius mentioned in the book of Acts. He is one of the prophets and teachers in the church in Antioch. This is Acts 13.1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So this could be that same Lucius, a an ex, an ex, uh, recognized prophet and teacher. And then he mentions Jason. Uh, this is probably the Jason mentioned in the book of Acts as well. Uh, 17, 5 to 9. It's a little bit, it's a whole paragraph, but it's worth just hearing a little bit about Jason. Uh, the, Jew, the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, where Paul and the other missionaries were meeting, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason. So Jason is the one who housed them. He's the one who puts up the bond, basically, to get them out of prison. They let them go. Sosipater, we don't know anything about. This is the only place he's mentioned, okay? So, uh, but some good, solid, trustworthy teachers he puts before them here. He also mentions a few others. He mentions Gaius. Uh, Gaius is the one whose house that they are staying. Oh, I should mention Tertius. It says Tertius who wrote this letter. Um, it was very typical to dictate a letter for someone else to write. Uh, Tertius is the one who is simply it's called an amanuensis, writing down the letter, and he takes a moment to say hello himself. He's probably a Christian believer and brother. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. 23, Gaius is host to me and the whole church. He's the one, they're writing from Corinth, who is actually housing the Christians, so he's probably a Christian leader there in Corinth. And then we learn about Erastus, the city treasurer, someone in a place of prominence there in Corinth, 
And then Cordus, again, whom we know nothing else about, is called a brother. But God provides good and faithful shepherds. Utilize them. <laughs> I mean, that, that's where we persevere. God, we avoid false teaching, and we cling to utilizing good shepherds who are faithful to the word. Um, I would mention, first of all, find a good local church pastor. Obviously, if you're part of First Baptist Church, I think you have that. Um, but uh, you want someone who is just faithful, not looking Again, to just make a name for themselves, not looking to get on the news, not looking for the latest fad and to be super creative, and, but wants to faithfully teach and preach and minister the word to you. I'd also say, when it comes to your reading, be cautious when you're reading to read good, solid, biblically faithful teachers um, if you're tr- looking for good Christian material. Um, I recommend the dead guys. All right. So the reason why is they've already they already said their life has been said and done. They're, they're not going to end badly, right? Because they've already ended. So uh, so I rec- the dead guys are the best. I love reading a good Spurgeon or D. Martin Lloyd Jones or someone like that. Um, but there are some good live authors as well. So I'm not saying there aren't any good live authors. But again, there's only so much time to read. Why would I waste my time with someone who is not a trustworthy, faithful teacher of the word? And many people would say, well, I, you know, I, I listened to this one guy, and some of the things he says is true. Right, it's exactly what we would expect. As Paul writes here, Satan comes as an angel of light. Some of it is going to appear good and enjoyable, and then there are going to be other things that are said that are not so great. I would say the same thing. Find good, faithful preachers of the word. I will mention a handful because Paul mentions a bunch of names. Notice he mentions no names of the false teachers, but he mentions a bunch of names of those whom he would command um i listen listen, i know those who do want to watch something on tv i think of david jeremiah michael youssef pretty good solid teachers worth listening to um if you're willing to go beyond that um uh, you can find on the internet a john macarthur or john piper you know faithful alistair Begg, plenty of good bible teachers very engaging worthwhile and worth listening to and i'll just say this read the bible all right, so if you're uh, saying, I only have so much time, Pastor Rick, I'm a slow reader, I don't read that much, uh, that's okay. If, in fact, if you read no other book but the Bible for the rest of your life, you'll be fine, okay? So you don't even need necessarily to go beyond that, but if you do like to read, it can be very beneficial and very helpful. Surround yourself with good, solid teaching. Part of the way we persevere is to find good teaching to learn from and to grow from. And of course, I'd recommend being committed to a local church. You, you want a pastor, who's, pastors, elders, who are committed to you and to watching over your soul. Uh, I'll say something a little controversial, all right? Um, I said this in the Bible study last night as well, though. I'm not a big fan of the multi-site churches. I, you know, to go to church and watch the sermon piped in by TV, I don't know if that's a good thing, all right? I mean, I'm not saying it's a sin and it's wrong and it's evil. I'm not sure that's a good thing. I'm really not even a big fan of multi services at the same church because what happens is if you have a nine o'clock service and an 11 o'clock service sometimes those nine o'clock people never meet the 11 o'clock people right and the 11 o'clock people never meet the nine o'clock people and you almost end up with two different churches there's something about god's people gathering together in fellowship with one another with pastors who are there present with you who know you personally it's not enough just to watch it on tv Someone who knows your soul, knows your struggles, prays with you, cares about you individually. And preachers, plural, 
who write sermons faithful to the word, but directed to you as a group, as a church family. He recommends utilizing faithful teachers. And then he ends 25 to 27 with a doxology, a final prayer for them. And in this, he calls upon God to strengthen them, that they would persevere and endure. To him who is able to strengthen you, how so? According to my gospel, according to the good news. Um, Hopefully, if you've been with us through the book of Romans, you have a clear understanding of what the gospel of grace is all about. We are sinners under the wrath of God, which is just and fair. God does nothing that is unjust, nothing that is unfair. And his judgment upon sin is what is right. If you're worried that God is too harsh, your very sense of justice comes from God. You can trust that the judge of all the earth will not do wrong. But God is merciful and kind and gives us his own son, Jesus, who is the atoning sacrifice for our sin, and that he calls us to repent and believe in him. And by putting our trust in him, we are united to him by faith. We die to sin. We die to the law. We become alive in him. And those whom God has died for and made his own, he will never leave or forsake. Be strengthened in that gospel. When we talk about persevering, we don't mean persevering in perfection. I don't even mean persevering in being good. (laughs) We mean persevering in your ongoing trust in God, in his grace in the gospel, which does transform us. According to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And he describes and defines the gospel here as the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now disclosed through the prophetic writings, which is a reference to the Old Testament scriptures, now made known to all nations. Usually, when the Bible talks about the gospel as a mystery, a secret, once hidden, but now disclosed, it's talking about two things. Number one is that Jesus would die, that the Messiah would die. That was not a clear expectation at the time. The Old Testament certainly talks about the coming of the Messiah. It does talk about the fact that the Messiah would suffer and die, Isaiah 53 and other places, certainly the whole sacrificial system, but that was not the expectation in the first century. Part of the mystery is that the Messiah comes and dies in our place. And the other mystery now revealed is that this gospel would be for all the nations, all peoples, not just for one people, but for all nations to bring them, as he calls it here, to the obedience of faith. What's the obedience of faith? One, to believe is to obey. God said, I've sent Jesus Christ, and the command is to believe in the one I have sent. So if you don't believe in Jesus, you are disobeying God. So the obedience of faith, for one thing, is simply to believe in the one whom he has sent. But certainly it's referring also to the obedience that comes from faith, that out of our faith comes a transformed life and he ends of course giving glory ultimately and finally to god the only wise god be glory forevermore through jesus christ amen calling here is that god would strengthen us now let me just say a few things because this may be part that's confusing you so if you're saying pastor rick (laughs) that we have to persevere in order to be saved as we just read jesus say in multiple different places. Does that mean we can be saved and then lose our salvation? Does that mean that we could at one point in time believe in Jesus 
and truly be going to heaven, and then we don't persevere, we reject the faith, we walk away from it, and now we lose our salvation. No, but let me explain why that's the case. What the Bible describes is that the true and genuine believer will persevere, will be preserved by God faithfully to the end. In fact, it says in 1 John that those who went out from us did not belong to us. How do we know they didn't belong to us? It says because they went out from us. (laughs) That was evidence that they never truly belonged to us from the beginning. Um, To truly be born again, regenerate of the Holy Spirit, is to never walk away. Well, if that's the case, then why do we have all these warnings in Scripture not to walk away? Because part of the means, part of the way that God preserves his people is through these very warnings. Uh, Spurgeon talks about this very thing. If you're with a kid and you, you're, you're coming close to a ledge, um, you're going to say to your kid, don't go near the ledge. Now, how are you going to make sure that he doesn't go near the ledge? By saying to him, don't go near the ledge. Right? That's the means by which you are protecting that kid from going too close to the ledge. Now, if he does decide to go too close to the ledge and he really is your kid, you're going to grab him and make sure he doesn't go over the ledge, right? So I don't know if you guys have been to the Grand Canyon. Uh, we went to the Grand Canyon a couple of years ago, 2020. Um, there's no ledge. I mean, there's no, uh, there's no fence. There's no, nothing, no guardrail, right? You literally can walk up to it, look down, and uh, thousands of feet, you know, it's just, it's crazy, right? So now my kids were older when we went, so we didn't need to. But you see parents with little kids kind of running around. It's, it's kind, of, kind of frightening to see. If I had a little kid there, I'd be holding his hand. <laughs> and if he wants to see close to the edge, we'd walk a little closer to the edge, and I would say to him or her, hold my hand, right? Hold my hand. Now, if they started to let go of my hand, I would grab their hand tighter and make sure they don't let go. God warns us again and again, be careful, persevere. Don't lose your faith. Don't go near the edge. Keep trusting Jesus right to the end. But Paul at the same time says, he was able to strengthen you. God is the one who will preserve you through the gospel. He is the one who sovereignly has saved you. And he is the one who sovereignly will crush Satan underneath your feet. His plan is at work, and God will never fail in what he intends to do. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. We trust that God will keep his people, even as we respond to the warnings to persevere faithfully. And friends, certainly, there's an encouragement here to pray. He ends this section, the entire book, actually, with this prayer for a reason. It's It's an encouragement to us to ask God to strengthen you ask God to keep you, that you would finish the race well. You know, as we come to the end here, this calling to persevere in the Christian life. We persevere by guarding against the evil one. We persevere by utilizing good shepherds. We persevere by being strengthened by God in the gospel. This might actually, I don't mean it to be, but this may seem a little discouraging for you. You might say, man, I I, I feel like this, is, this is, lacks assurance, right? I don't know. I, I have to persevere to the end. 
Actually, I think if you sort of flip it around, it's actually an extremely encouraging truth of the Bible. It doesn't matter how you started, right? Some of you guys say, you know, (laughs) my life started with a lot of sin. Um, I, I was addicted to alcohol. I was addicted to drugs or whatever. I was a crime, and I don't know if God will ever truly love me. The truth of the matter is, the question of the Scriptures is, are you right now trusting in Christ as your Savior, and will you persevere faithfully to the end? You might say, I grew up in a Christian home, Pastor Rick. I don't even remember ever becoming a Christian. I don't remember any moment in my life when I said, I now believe in Jesus. I just always remember believing. Does that mean I'm not really saved? Of course not. The question in the Bible is not, do you have some great, amazing conversion story? The question is, are you now trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, and will you continue to persevere in Him? You might say, I'm coming off the path all the time, right? The path in Proverbs there, you're supposed to stay on the path. I'm bouncing off to the left sometimes and falling off the wagon. I'm bouncing off to the right sometimes, and I just keep messing up in the Christian faith. Does that mean I'm not a real, genuine believer? I'm not going to make it to the end? Of course not calling in the scriptures is, are you now trusting as Christ in Christ as Savior and Lord, and will you persevere in him? And for those who stay firm to the end, trusting in the Savior, the promise again and again is that you and I will be with him forever. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God, as we have now come to the conclusion of the book of Romans, we thank you, Lord, for what you have done to save us. We thank you, Lord, for what you have done for Christians throughout the ages. Lord, Christians have been studying this very book for 2,000 years around the entire globe and have been reminded afresh of what the gospel is all about. Christ died for me. Is risen in triumph over the grave and we are united to him by faith. Help us, Lord, to hold on to that message even as we trust that you are holding on to us. And Lord, as we continue to walk with the Lord Jesus, fill us with the blessed assurance of knowing that we are yours. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you stand?